Shabamaniacs, you're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about web design, front end development. I'm Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyer. Hey, we have a, a, a special show for you. We have uh, Jen Simmons. Hey, Jen. Hello. Hey, uh, uh, I guess a longtime friend of the show. We have, in the first year the show existed back in episode 48, which is forever ago on this show. Wow. Although. And in episode number 262, you were back to uh, to talk grid. And I think that's probably uh, still a super hot topic. And so I, we'd probably get into some of that stuff. But it's been – but you're you're at Mozilla now, right? I think yeah. you maybe we're just starting there then. But now it's been – it feels like it's been a while, a couple of years maybe. I've been there three years now, like three years and a week or something, two weeks. Oh, nice. Did, you get, did yeah. they send you a little watch or something? No, they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Uh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, it's good. I like it. I like it at uh, Mozilla. I like being in Mm -hmm. my job title there, designer, developer, advocate. It's really pretty. It's a great. Yeah, I think people associate you at Mozilla now. I I think at least I do, and uh, and just are just in awe of all the 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 work you do. And it seems like you're being highly effective as a. Whatever, whatever your role is there, exactly letting people know what they're, uh, what's possible, oh, and you know, I get emails from you once in a while about, hey, Firefox is doing this cool thing, and I'm like, oh, thanks, good to know. Actually, you know, as somebody who, I feel like, I feel like the world doesn't keep me abreast well enough. <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> is there some technology you think uh, I should know about? Please email me and tell me. Uh, but one of those recent ones was, hey, Firefox, what is it, 62, 63, rolling out soon, which had which kind of had a lot of stuff. Yeah, Firefox 62 just came out yesterday as we're recording this. It was yesterday or, you know, sometimes it takes a day or two for each browser to update. So it's coming out right now. Yeah. And it, yeah, it felt like there was a while where there wasn't really a lot of new exciting CSS coming out. And all of a sudden, Chrome is Chrome has the same shipping schedule as, as Firefox. And so Chrome just came out with some new CSS and Firefox just came out with some new CSS. And it's always yeah. fun to be like, yay, new tools. Right. Yay. Like I don't cover every single release of every single browser thing at CSS Tricks because it's just not – it's usually – a, like a little bit interesting, but not particularly CSS-y. But back to back, both Chrome and Firefox had some pretty CSS-y releases. So that was nice. What well, What's the big stuff in Firefox? Yeah, so we just shipped CSS Shapes, finally, like, I don't know, four years after everybody else. <laughs> um, but it, what it means is that folks who want to use CSS Shapes, there's more reason now than ever to go ahead and use it. I think that I've heard a lot of people over the last several years say, well, I would use it, but it's not in every browser, which is sort of silly because you could totally use it even if it's not in every browser. It's still not in every browser. Um but it is now in Firefox. So Firefox supports shape outside and shape margin, and it lets you... Shape margin? You can float something, like classically imagine an image, but you could also float a block code or something else, a block of color, and then flow the content around it. You float the, you float the first thing, and then you flow the rest of the content around it. And so typically you're floating an image and you're flowing text. But rather than having that text flow in a box, like in a rectangular mm-hmm. shape, it you can have it flow in a circle or flow in a um, poly, any sort of polygon, any, sh- any shape you might make with a polygon um, or an ellipse or it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool look. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, wow, the web can do that. You know, like we've yeah. never been able to do that before. So it has a very 
unique looking thing with no with really no big sacrifice right it doesn't really hurt accessibility unless you i guess unless you make it hard to read in some way but not right. semantically and it just looks cool so that's a that's a nice one you you i remember years ago had like labs you know your labs thing that had all kinds of demos of of different ways that you could do that and it made for a great makes for a great kind of progressive enhancement talking point because it's one of those yeah. things where like oh big deal it doesn't wrap in a circle so what you know Right. I've shipped it on the WebAhead website, I don't know, four or five mm-hmm. years ago. And sh- yeah, the, the the places where Shapes works, it wraps around the circles because each of the pictures of a person is in a circle. And you know, you get this kind of nice circular bio going around the outside of the circle of the picture of the person. Yeah. Um, and then in the other browsers, it was just sort of this square shape, um, which I, I, th- I actually ended up with a layout that I never would have come up with if CSS shapes hadn't existed. And even if I removed the CSS shape property and just had the kind of lollipop rectangular stair steppy thing that I had created, I realized, oh, like even just imagining the possibilities broke me out of a uh, rut, you know, that maybe I would have just done a layout yeah. like everybody else does for their bios. But. I remember there used to be kind of a tricky way you could do it by floating like 50 boxes all of different widths on top of each other <laughs> that was kind of a fun little hack yeah or like i don't know back in the fixed width days i guess you could wrap each line of text in a span and then put like a different length margin on that span and then but you had to like pray uh, that the type would never well, change now that sides. really is affecting and, semantics and possibly accept uh, yes. accessibility oh, because it, of the weird it's terrible right. but like those but back when css was new we had all these ideas and we were excited and we were like hey let's do this awesome thing how would you do it oh we can't do that <laughs> And yeah, now and here we are. Responsive wrecked all that too. Yeah, and responsive wrecked all of that for sure. And now here we are, ten years later, and you can totally do it. And people are like, "Nah, I don't wanna." Yeah, it's trendier now just to do rectangles. I think the big news here is the Firefox Dev Tools for the shapes is amazing. And I know you thanks like advised yes. on that, and uh, it is in- it's the best, and it actually makes like if the you're gonna do user- this, you can't. It's it's hard to do without some kind of help. Because you you're not gonna you can't just invent coordinates in your brain Poly- for you polygon know. paths like oh yeah I'll just riff and do a polygon from yeah, memory not happening yeah that's that's really the theory behind all the new dev tools that we're making it's in in a little under a little umbrella called design tools inside the Firefox dev tools is these tools for CSS so the CSS grid inspector is the first one now we have a shape path editor which lets you edit shape paths, which are a thing in CSS that you use both for CSS shapes and you use them for clip path. So um, if you're using clip path, the clip, the what's showing, you're taking basically the box that is the content and you're like clipping it to not be a rectangle. You're sort of clipping it to be smaller and you're making it to be a, some sort of polygon. It's so impossible to do that without a tool. And I wanted us to have one. I wanted the industry to have a tool where you could just really easily, quickly, just as easy as the color picker, basically. You go find the property that you've written, clip path or shape outside, and there's like this little icon as if, you know, when you say color and there's like a little color palette icon, it's like here you say clip path and there's like this little icon of a tiny path and you click it and it changes the... um, 
what's going on on the webpage. It brings up this tool and you can grab and drag it and you can click, uh, I think it's command click or there's like, there's a keyboard shortcut too and you can switch it into a different mode and you can um, mess around with it and figure it out. It's, it's very right much, on the page. It's not like an approximation yeah. of it or whatever. It's like an overlay on top of what you're doing. And as you move the points around, you're watching the text reflow and into position and all that stuff. So it really does make this like re- po- possible in a way that it isn't otherwise. Yep. And this idea for this tool first came from Razvan Kaliman when he was working at Adobe over there with Alan Stearns and a couple other folks on this web platform team that Adobe had several years ago. And they, I think they wrote the spec for CSS shapes. I know they were working on the spec for regions and they were working on these different kinds of specs that would allow people to do the kinds of graphic design treatments that you can do in InDesign or Illustrator or in these graphic design programs that people use, these Adobe products, they wanted to help get some of that stuff onto the web. Um, so they got these specs going and they were advocating for these things. And Rosvon had made a tool very similar to the tool that we just shipped that is a Chrome plugin. And so I was standing on stage and telling people, hey, go look at this cool Chrome plugin, like, I don't know, four or five years ago before I joined Mozilla. Um and every time people's mouths would just drop open. People were so excited about it. Uh, and it really helped teach what's possible f- with um, shapes and clip path too. It's funny. I wonder why they never put it in Chrome Dev. I mean, I know it's just a different company with different priorities and stuff, but it seems like it's four yeah. years old and lo- loads of people love it. Just take it. Well, and the great thing about being able to put it straight into the browser is that then as the browser team, like we got people who implemented CSS shapes to create an API. We got people who, when we built the grid inspector, the folks who implemented grid also, or one of the other engineers created an API so that the engineer who worked on Gabe Long, who worked on the grid inspector, like he could tap into, there's just things that you can do when it's baked straight into the browser that you can't mm. do when it's a plugin. Um, like the user experience design on the plugin I had talked to Roswan years ago. I was like, why is it over here in this weird tab? Like it would be way better if it was this little icon right in line. And he's like, I know, I would love to do that, but I can't. But it's just not possible for some reason. Yeah. But now Roswan works at Firefox. He works on our, on this Mm. team, the designer tools team. So he helped finish the, um, swipe path editor and got to do some of the stuff that he hadn't got to do before and make it, um, way better. So what's your flow when you do it? And you get it just right in DevTools, you know, I feel like some people have this very exotic workflow where they've opened DevTools and they've somehow mapped their DevTools so that when you make edits to the sources in DevTools, it can save it back out to disk. But the few, I feel like the people I know who do that are are few and far between. Like most of us use... <laughs> All members of the Chrome team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they like hack their browser personally. I don't know, something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen people, it's, it is a very cool workflow, but I feel like most of us don't do that because the most of us are, for one thing, are we're working in some kind of preprocessor language or something anyway that doesn't really jive with that particularly well. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. But the point is, most of us have to th- find some way to copy and paste what we've changed from DevTools back over to our source. And uh, I wonder how much you all think about that. Like <laughs> A lot. Do you? A lot. Yeah, that's, that's been, there are other folks on the team who've been pushing for that quite hard um, because there is this way in which, I don't know, it feels like the old school people are like, 
and I maybe I'm in this camp, like, well, you just, this is just how it works. You open up your code editor and you open up your browser and you open up DevTools and then you like right. only make a few changes in DevTools and you keep track of them in your head and then you just copy paste everything back into the code editor. What's wrong with that? That's how you- Yeah, because right? we've been doing it for, for so many years. But I wonder if there's right. just little stuff like right clicking on a- you know, I, I use things like, let's say you want to grab a little piece of HTML. So you right click it and you say like copy outer HTML or something and it gives you that whole thing. But what if in CSS you could click and say like copy this value or copy this key value pair or copy this whole rule set or just. Well, can- and part of it is as we've gotten deeper into thinking about the dev tools as a design tool and as a, you know, figuring out the CSS as you go. And you might really want to go way down a path and try not just two or three adjustments, but try 30, 40, 50. What if you want to be able to take those and send them to somebody else in an email or in a chat mm-hmm. and like have them open up their browser and see what you're seeing without it being like I a feel whole. Like I saw some little service that did that just the other day, but, you, but you're well, talking about in the browser. Yeah, but we're working on all those things. This team is, um, the DevTools team is, is talking about all of those things. Uh, and we're going to, of course, because you got to start small and iterate, we're going to start yeah. out with a way to keep track of the changes that you've made. So if you've made a whole bunch of changes in CSS, that you can just keep track of them and you can, you can um, I forget what the very first scope is, but that you'll be able to like, a bit like, um, you know, if you're using some okay. sort of word processor and you've made a bunch of you're like editing an article with other people and it keeps track of the changes that have been made and you can kind of like look and see what's going on or yeah like git does keeps tracks of changes or um that that would be the first step but later but to have a way to export them and then so you could kind of email somebody a file and they could run it and um, that team is definitely thinking about all of those different possibilities. Well, it's like you've dipped your toes already because there's this whole scratch pad thing that feels aligned with that a little bit. Like, yeah, I don't know if we've shipped anything yet. Um, I should know more about what we where they are on this, but the um, Firefox Nightly is always a great place to go. Um, you can grab it. I don't know, just search for Firefox Nightly or, or nightly.mozilla.org gets, is a shortcut to get to the download page. Because anything that's coming, like uh, track changes, will be implemented in Nightly. Do you kind of prefer, is Nightly even ahead of de- the developer version of Firefox? or is it Yeah, the- so Dev Edition and Beta are one version ahead. So Firefox just shipped mm-hmm. 62, which means Dev Edition and Beta, Firefox 63. Beta, both switched to 63, and Nightly switched to 64. Okay, so if you really want the super cutting edge, it's Nightly. For sure. Yeah, and then the other thing that Nightly has is stuff that it's not like everything in Nightly will come out in 64. It's more like 64 and beyond is in Nightly. Um, yeah. So if there are things that are going to take four or five cycles to build, then they're in Nightly until they're like actually ready to be, to get on the, the they say, train, to get on the train to go to beta and and then go to regular. But so something like track changes. Also, you can go to, you can get like about colon config and there's this giant list of stuff that's half built and you can kind of like turn it on in your own browser. That's what we did with grid for a long time, right? Like, oh, if you go to about colon config in Firefox, you can like search for the word grid. You can find it. You can turn it on. Subgrids will be there soon. It's not there yet, but um, maybe in the next month. Um, people could turn on subgrid and try out subgrid and see if they like it or not. Um, it will be half broken for a while and all that stuff, but yeah, that's a good one. I know there was so much 
pushback in the early days of even some people that maybe have gone on far and said you shouldn't have shipped grid without without subgrid. I, I guess I might disagree with that at this point because obviously grid has been super successful and useful to a lot of us even without subgrid. But now that subgrid is here, I guess that makes everybody happy. It took me a minute to even wrap my head around it because I was like, I think when people say the word subgrid, what comes to your mind is, well, you can put a grid inside of a grid, uh, another grid. And you're like, you can already do that. You don't need subgrid to do that. Right. Uh, But subgrid is this way of sharing, sharing grid lines or something. Yeah. Or subgrid, I mean, it's so that you can put one grid inside of another grid and then the inner grid could get some kind of sizing based on the content that's in it or whatever. And that sizing that's happening will affect the outer grid. And maybe there's more than one inner grid and the sizing from one of the inner grids will affect the outer grid. And then the outer grid sizing will affect the other inner grid sizing. So you can, yeah, they affect you basically, each other in a way that wasn't right. Right. Cause right now the way that you definitely want to use grid and flexbox and just regular old flow content and multi-column is that yeah. you're going to nest you nest these things inside of each other everything's nested inside of something inside of something inside of something mm-hmm. so you're gonna nest grids is the question is once we have subgrid in all the browsers and we're ready to use it it'll be like oh do you want to have the nested grids affect each other when it comes to sizing information or do you want them to ignore each other and just do their own thing when it comes to sizing um, both will be super useful, but yeah. Well, I can't wait for the layout land video on subgrids. I'm sure. Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait till it lands in nightly, so I can start playing with it and um, and make you know. I think there are a bunch of us who are trying to like are just kind of waiting to see, you know, to see is it really going to do what we're imagining it does? Is, how's it going to feel? It's it's like prototyping something, you know. Once you have it in your hands, it's it's always a little different than how you imagined it. So. And like one browser always has to go first and like try the, like be the sort of like, I guess, run it up the flagpole and see what everyone thinks of it, you know? Yeah. And I think this time it's going to be Firefox. I think we're, I think we're ahead of Agalia on this. Agalia, of course, will be implementing it on behalf of Chrome and, and Safari. Um, mm. And I haven't talked but, to the Edge folks, so I don't know where they're at. Maybe they're working on it too. I don't know. But not to, uh, it doesn't stop there. The variable fonts inspector in Chrome or Firefox here, the new one is awesome and probably will uh, change how we all interact with fonts in our web inspectors. Yes. Thank you, Dave Rupert, for keeping us on track. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that shipped in Firefox 62 that's the big news for CSS is variable font support. So, variable fonts for the folks who maybe aren't clear on what they are is. Uh, you know, with web fonts, you can pick a font and it's awesome and you put it on the page and it can be the size that you tell it to be. And if you want to have a condensed version and a really super wide version, you want to have a, like a really thin and a really thick, bold version, um, you can, oh, then you can have four fonts or eight fonts or 12 fonts. Or if, sometimes the font family will have quite a few different fonts in that family. But we all know from using web fonts that you can't really use 12 fonts in a family on the website because then you're asking people to download way too much information. So variable fonts is a way, it's like an update to the open type um, f- like specification so that there's it's a new ability for fonts, the f- actual font. It's not a different format for fonts. It's still going to be WAF or WAF2. It's still going to be um, open type, open, you know, like a font. But 
it's a new superpower that fonts can have. And it basically, instead of having like really thin font and then a different font that's really bold, you can have one font that has an, an axis for weight. And at one end of the, of the, um, like it's a continuum. So at one end of the continuum, it's really thin. And at the other end of the continuum, it's really thick, really bold. And then you can sort of pick. And, you know, with like CSS, you write font weight, colon, mm-hmm. 100, 200, 300, right up to 900. And then I always kind of wondered, like, why is it 400 and 500? Like, why? You can't write 497. What about but with variable fonts, that's exactly how it works. It's almost like they reserved all those extra numbers for us for now. <laughs> yeah. And so now you can say 427 and it means something. And then you can say 456 and it means something slightly different. And you can adjust. You can sit there with your typography and adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust. And there's a whole bunch of cool websites that you can find fonts. You can play with fonts. Access practices is probably one of the most um, well-known because it's one of the, it came out either first or it was one of the first. Um, v dash fonts is a great site that you can like find them. Um, they're trying to basically catalog all the new web mm-hmm. fonts that are out there that have. And these, I've seen these and they're, they're fun because not only do they show you what the font looks like, but they have all these sliders and stuff that allow you to play with those things. And that, but that's what yeah. you're moving into the browser, which is significant. Yep. Right? Because with my experience with, say, um, even just trying to pick a font, like trying to pick a, just you go to the website for, I don't know, Typekit or Google Fonts, or you go to some website that has a whole bunch of fonts and you play around with them and they have, you know, a chance to like change the the sample text or a chance maybe to change a little bit of how the font looks. And you you pick one and you think, ah, this is it. This is perfect. I love this font. And then you put it on your real website with your real content with the other kinds of parts of the design. And you're like, that doesn't look anything like I thought it was going to. Mm. Um, And I have found myself struggling with that for years as a designer, kind of like realizing that looking at a font or evaluating it or picking, adjusting it, like changing the color or the size or whatever on a third party website does not get you the same results as sitting there and doing it on your real website for real on the, in the browser. Um, even something like Photoshop is different. You can pick and pick and pick choices to, till you think you've got it perfect, but Photoshop doesn't render fonts the same way that the web does. There's nothing like actually getting into a real web browser with your real content and your real branding and your real everything and, 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 perfecting the choices that you're making. So when I saw variable fonts coming and I saw um, how excited people were and how popular it was going to be very quickly, um, I so finally started learning about open type features, which I had kind of not learned about CSS level three. Those are things like ligatures and swashes and things like that, right? Yeah. And like, which do you have kerning? Does it work or not? Like all these little details I had just kind of never gotten into. It seems like one of those things that was on my list. Like someday I'll go learn that stuff, but I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. There's something missing. And I, this January, I, I, I dove deep into all of that stuff and came back up and was like, oh yeah, the reason people don't really understand how to use open type features is that it's like a big box of mystery and it's really hard to know what's going on. So I want I wanted all of that into a font tool. So the very first version of the font tool, which isn't in Firefox yet, it's coming out in Firefox 63 in October. I think it's like October 25th or somewhere around there. 
Um, but you can use it today and nightly. Like you, you could use it. You probably could use it today in Dev Edition. Although I might suggest using nightly because if there's any updates or changes that we need to make, well, it will happen in nightly immediately, where it will take six weeks for them to land in Dev Edition. Um, but there's a there's a whole font panel. The font panel's been there quite a long time, but um, we basically ripped out what was there and put in a brand new font panel. And the new font panel has all of these different sliders for variable axes, um, whether they are kind of the registered axes, the sort of official axes that a font might have, like weight or stretch, which uses the font weight CSS property or the font stretch CSS mm. property. Yeah, I was going to um, say, they, they, these variable font things can be anything, right? But there are some yeah. quote-unquote official ones because we have font weight in CSS already. Like, it's not mandatory that somebody making a variable font makes theirs font weight ready, but it's right. probably pretty common. It's common. So that's the the variable font axes people. There's the people who are on the committee to decide what the registers axes are. There's five right now. There'll be more later probably. And mm -hmm. they're basically just trying to say, hey, if everybody's going to have some sort of a weight axes, let's make it official and let's map it to a real CSS property like font weight. Um, and if somebody wants to make one that's like, more cowbell, less cowbell. Well, that's right. Not There's one that's like, thing. how many leaves are, how much blood dripping off of this font <laughs> right. do I want? I'm yeah, <laughs> right. Oozy, ooze factor. Right. So those are not ever going to be official. And so you, then you use the property that's um, font variation settings, and you use this kind of secret four-digit code that you need to know. Um, and that's another reason to use something like the Firefox font editor tool, because if you don't know what those codes are, you don't know what the axes, like what axes are available. Um, Crazily enough, just, there's no way to find out. You just can't find out unless you use some kind of tool to suss it out for you. Exactly. Or, or you're on like the the font foundries webpage like yeah, about like that they have, font they to have know all the open type right. features. Or when you when you download a font from a font foundry, if that's how you in fact bought the font, it came with a PDF, and in that no, PDF, I pirated it from Font Squirrel. So <laughs> this is 2018. It's funny to me though. I'm like, oh, those PDFs have incredibly valuable information in there because they'll tell you what kind of stylistic alternatives they have or what kind of like options for numerals or or caps or something they have and i just never i never knew that before like oh you should read the manual that came with the font yeah but you wouldn't know that you don't know what you, like tools or, or toys you almost would say like that you have available that you can play with and kind of mess around with your font and you know what i find interesting for the desktopy people like maybe if you open that pdf up in illustrator i'm not sure how the font gets embedded or whatever but i know that there's variable font tools shipping in the Adobe suite now too, so that as you're, if, you know, it's not quite the same as Jen was saying as working in the browser, which I couldn't agree with more, but still, you know, some people have a workflow in which you're working with a designer yeah. or whatever. And it's nice that those designers can produce things using those variable fonts, using the same type of sliders and tools that we'll have available. Yeah, or, you know, variable fonts don't just work on the web, they work everywhere. So you might be using a variable font to do an illustration in InDesign, and then to do the magazine layout in, you know, a magazine layout in InDesign, an illustration in Illustrator, and you, then you're going to use them on the website, right? Like, so that's part of the idea is that they... um yeah, we need tools everywhere. It's it's really interesting. Fonts are so much more complicated than I would have realized. The, the more we dig into what it takes to build these tools, the more confused the team even becomes and the more we're like, oh my God, this is so hard. Uh, 
because it's not just CSS, it's also the font file and understanding what's happening with the font file and whether it's succeeding or failing, and also the operating system of the computer. Um, like var- yeah. like variable fonts in Firefox and in Safari both only work in Mac OS 10.13 and above. So if you're if your Mac is running an operating system from year before last, then like you don't see the variable fonts you get. Wow, it's that low level of how it yeah. needs to. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll say if 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 you're really if this variable font stuff is making you very excited and don't listen to every episode of Shop Talk Show but want to hear a lot more, episode 296 with Jason Pamental goes way into that and even 314 when we talk to Tim Brown about flexible type stuff, variable fonts come up. So those two would be good episodes to listen to. Yep. Jason just wrote a big um guide for us, uh variable font Wonderful. guide on on MDN. So there's a brand new the whole thing on MDN about how they work and stuff. Yeah. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you by Jetpack. You know, that WordPress plugin that brings a whole bunch of power to your WordPress install. Here's one of the like overall categories of things that it can do for your site. And one of it is kind of like protect it. So for example, you can just flip a switch and then you'll get email notifications if your site goes down, which is a dang nice thing to know. And of course, when it comes back up again, so if there's any problem with your site, you don't have to wait for a user to find out or whatever. You can get notified of that thing. Perhaps more importantly though depending on which jetpack subscription you get there's a, a, a it connects with the service called vault press you know from automatic as well which backs up your site all the theme files all the files that run wordpress and the database and your media files it's absolutely everything from your site so it's totally safe so if anything were to happen to it or if you were to even screw up your site in some way you have backups of it that's such a fantastic thing and you can kind of trust them to do it well and what's cool about vault press is that it kind of works both ways you can restore from it as well so it's like if something were to go wrong with your site you can roll back on the same server which is kind of cool but it's it's kind of a fun tricky little thing is you can use it to move servers as well because you can you can restore from a backup on vault press on like a another installation of WordPress. So I think that's kind of cool is that it's like a, it's like it's backup for you, but you can use that backup to restore to another location. So it's kind of a, a cool way to move a site if you need to. So that's just a few of the things that Jetpack can do. I find it tremendously worthwhile on all my WordPress sites because of all that and all of the other stuff that it does. It just makes it kind of one of those no brainer plugins for me. Uh, check them out. Goodbye. So, okay, so we, we we talked a little bit about grid and subgrid and and sh- and shape path stuff and variable fonts, and there's just a lot happening on the web. And I feel like it's been your message for possibly a number of years now that that all this stuff is kind of giving birth perhaps to a new era of 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 web design. I definitely believe that. I and that's the the conference talk that I'm giving this year um, at Event Apart and other conferences is. You know, this is the fourth year, actually the fifth year, the fourth talk that I've written, um, kind of going deep dive into layout. And I feel like now that Grid has shipped and now that we've had some time to really start to use it and start to figure out, you know, we kind of can see the whole landscape that we have at the moment. We, um, Rachel Andrews has been talking this about a lot of this stuff too and, and, and focusing on sizing and understanding uh, sizing and understanding uh, flow like I realized, you know, we really have to go back and, and learn, like, what does it mean to not use any layout method at all? What 
why is it that things are the size that they are when they're just in a flow layout? Um, yeah. But putting all those pieces together, I, for the first year of learning grid, I was very much of the mindset that this is really awesome. It's responsive web design plus. It's just like responsive web design, way easier, done better. And then the the deeper and deeper I dug, the more I started to realize that I don't think that this is responsive web design layout better. I think that this is actually a whole new era in what's possible in layout. And I think that partly because of um, because I've been doing CSS since the beginning, and I've been making websites since before CSS existed. And I and we've gone through these eras before where, like, tables for layout was new at one point, and then it went away because we decided that using Flash was better, or that went away because we decided that doing fluid with floated layouts was better and fixed with layouts and all those blog layouts that we were doing. And like, we've gone through these different moments, these eras, usually around four to six years long. I think responsive web design is actually the longest we've had so far, because it was actually all of eight years um, where we sort of said to each other, like, Oh, what's the best practice? Do it like this. Oh, what kind of, what should our wireframes look like? Oh, they're going to look kind of like this. Um, and I think we've struggled to find a way to do layout because we haven't really had real layout tools. And so we've been trying one hack after another, after another, and each hack has been sequentially better than the ones that came before it, but we're still struggling with these hacks. And I think that we've compromised our design ideas and our graphic design, you know, like what we might want to do with graphic design because the technology just couldn't do it. Um, and I think at this point, it's sort of the dynamic between like what's possible and what we want is we don't have this kind of tension anymore between, or not not to the same degree of like, oh, I want to do this amazing graphic design thing, but if I did that, then the site would be inaccessible. Or if I did that, then the site would be, like the content would be so screwed up, it would never be, we couldn't use it again if if we redesigned later. So we can't do, like the the dynamic, the, dy- the, the way that things affect each other has just changed so drastically with CSS Grid showing up that um, I I dared to stand on stage at an event apart this, this April or this whole year and say, I think, I think we should, the idea, the ideas about layout that we're so dominant in the responsive web design era are actually over. And I think we need a new name. I think we need to stick a flag in the ground and declare a new era so that we can, we can really understand how different it is. And then we can talk about the new choices um, and have a words for them and be able to explain them to each other. So I'm proposing that we use the name intrinsic web design. So it might be that, like, maybe it's more complicated than this, but maybe that if you just were to, even if you were to use CSS Grid to set it up, but if all you're going to do is set, like, percentage width columns and then maybe change them at a media query, that that's maybe still responsive design. Yeah. But in this new world, if you were to say, well, this is, I'm going to set up a grid, but the grid is going to have, some of it is, some of these columns are just going to be based on the size of content within it. I change the font stretch property on a font, it might push that a little wider just naturally because it has some kind of auto-calculatedness to it. And then there's something over here that's fixed, and there's something over here that 
has a, fr- a fraction of what's left and there's something over here that can go this small but not any smaller and this big but not any bigger that we're thinking about the way that we set up grids in a more i guess just i don't know it's just it's tempting to say complicated because i guess what it is but maybe it is more complicated but also i think it is much more like we're programming a layout algorithm Rather than telling the browser where to put everything, it's almost like programming a kind of artificial, you know, miniature artificial intelligence engine for layout for the page that you're building instead of put this here, put that there, make this this wide, make this that wide. Um, it can be that. It doesn't have to be. But um, and the the thing that I that that to me the biggest difference between responsive and intrinsic web design is that if in responsive Let's say you have five columns wide, and at some point you're going to make it four or six or whatever. But let's say, you know, at a certain screen size, you have five columns wide. All five of those columns are going to be, I mean, they're not real for one, but they're pretend columns. The pretend columns are all set in percents. And so as you adjust the width of the browser window, everything gets bigger the same amount as everything else. And everything gets smaller the same amount as everything else. Um, And it's so obvious that we didn't even really notice that that's how it works. It's just how it works. Like you have five columns, they're always, you know, getting bigger or smaller at the same rate as each other as the window gets bigger and smaller. But with intrinsic web design, like if you define, to keep it a little bit simple for a moment, if you define a few of your columns in FR units and you define other columns using min-max, as you open and close the window or, you know, make it wider or narrower, the probably the FR units would grow and shrink while the min-max ones stay the same until you get to a certain s- smallness, you squish it down, and then the min-max ones start uh, changing size while the FR unit ones stay the same. And when I first saw that, I was like, what in the world is going on? I didn't know that was going to happen. I just was coding lots of weird demos and like throwing things at the wall and seeing what happened. And I was like, what the heck is why why is it and it's because of the way that uh, fr unit is defined because of the way that min max is defined and then you also have auto and you can make so it is specked out like this isn't this isn't going to hurt us cross browser it's pretty consistent oh it's completely consistent it's totally specced i just hadn't read the or memorized the grid auto placement or the grid sizing algorithm uh, it's tough the, to do over the over a podcast but can we do the order <laughs> like what's the most dominant thing like what will move first when you read change something so let's let's set aside auto with stuff because auto with stuff makes it auto all is weird auto, auto is weird. weird i mean auto depends completely on the size of the content that's in inside it i mean that's super mm-hmm. hard to explain so let's just leave that aside so pretend we're not we don't have auto but we have an fr we have a min max we have a fixed width i don't i should read the algorithm to be able to tell you what the browser is thinking i don't this might be in it. So I don't know that. I don't know the algorithm. But what I do know from the front end developer point of view is, of course, the fixed width one is going to be whatever size that you told it to be. Yeah. So maybe you said 200 pixels. Maybe you said 12M, which is actually ca- gets calculated to a pixel size. Or maybe you said 20%, which also gets calculated to a pixel size. Okay. So, so if you were saying p- percentages are a are, are form of fixed width percentages are actually a form of fixed width, at least especially from the point of view of the browser, because it's like a known length. You're giving it a fixed length, um, which depends on the width of the uh, window or the or the containing block, actually. It depends on the size of the containing block. It's going to calculate, you know, oh, you're supposed to be 50% of your containing block. Well, your containing block is 600 pixels, so that means you're 300 pixels. Especially on like a phone. Like that's easy to imagine, like 
100% of the width of the phone. Okay, I know that. Right. The browser just... Yeah. And viewport units are the same way too. You know, if you say, I want you to be 12 viewport units, you know, VH or VA, VW, if you say, oh, be 50 VW, then that's like a pixel. It's calculated down to a pixel number, right? So you've got these different ones that are kind of like set numbers. Those get set first. And then uh, the min-max one, it basically min-max, you say min-max, open parenthesis, number, Maybe there's a comma. I don't remember. This is terrible. I don't remember. And then uh, the second number and then close parentheses. So you're basically saying, I think there is a comma. You're basically saying, I don't want it to be any smaller than the first number. And I don't want it to be any bigger than the second number. Um, And so it will try to be as big as it can be, but it might not get all the way there. And if it doesn't, and then it will make sure that it's never smaller than the smallest size. Um, But that kind of has like a medium rankish thing and then the fr units fr units will take up all the extra space so if you calculate all the all the known width things to be the widths that they should be and then you make the min max one be at max then the fr unit one will get whatever else is around um so and that's what the fr stands for is fraction of available space left over a little bit like flexbox although it's not the same but a little bit so if you have four one fr columns then the browser looks at okay well how much more stuff do we have how much more space do we have okay let's give one quarter of each of the of the extra space to those four one fr unit things it's so fascinating but the cool thing one of the awesome one of the best things that i love about even if you just want to do only fr units if you do right. 12 one FR unit width columns and you have nothing else going on, then it's going to act an awful lot like responsive web design because um, those four columns are going to shrink and grow at the same rate. So that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Like you don't right. have to use these superpowers. They're just, I just want I people to this. know that so they cool. could. But still, it's different than using percents because with a percent, let's say there are. Um, there's a photo in each one of those columns and the photo for some weird reason is like a hundred pixels wide. Every one of those is a hundred pixel wide photo and they're not, they don't have any percent CSS on them. They're just set to a hundred pixel. If it's all percents, then you can stretch all the way out and there'll be a lot of extra space. But then when you squish all the way down, the columns will be the, if they're, I don't know, 12.5%, they'll be 12.5% of the containing block. So if the containing block is too small, then all those images will start overlapping with each other, right? They'll stick out. You'll have overflow problems. Mm-hmm. But FR unit columns never shrink smaller than the min content size of the content that's inside of them. So those t- 12 one FR columns will grow and shrink. They'll look remarkably like percent size columns, but then when you squish them all the way down and you get to the point where I guess it's 12, 100 with um, photos, it will stop and it won't squish anymore. It will never get smaller. And the whole thing will overflow out the side of the container. Which is kind of, it sounds bad, but it's kind of desirable. It's really Really? awesome. It's basically like a protection against that mug graphic that everybody has, where it says CSS is awesome and the word awesome is sticking out of the box. Yeah. It's like if that box were sized with a 1FR unit, then that word awesome would always fit. Mm -hmm. 
You solved the coffee mug problem? We solved the coffee <laughs> mug problem. <laughs> so I put together a little thing here. This is fascinating. That Okay, let's say there's four columns, and I know this can get way more interesting and complicated, but display grid, and then you're setting up the columns. My first one is 1FR. Yeah. My second one is min-max 50 pixels and 100 pixels. Okay. The third one is 20%. Yeah. And the last one is auto, and I know we that's a complicated thing. We can talk but, about auto, but yeah, I want to talk about the which, other stuff Which div gets to New York first? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, auto auto will ho- will probably hog up all the all the all the space first. Well, I only put I put the letter A in it, so it's definitely uh, not so, doing that. No, then it will go to min content size, which is this width the size really really a. quite narrow in this yeah. case. But uh, they all have the letter A in them, which I know isn't the best okay. use, you know. But that's just the way it is. So there's nothing wrong with that. We're going to keep talking down this example, but I just want to interject that part of why I think people don't necessarily understand this thing about grid and also don't really understand Flexbox is that so much of the time we don't actually put real content into the demos or the things, right. the experiments. And without real content, a lot of the dynamic that could happen won't actually show up. So if you actually put four paragraphs of text in that yeah. auto Well, let's talk about that. It will act completely differently than if you just put the word A in there. Or so if you say, just nothing. leave it blank, right? Like sometimes yeah. people will make demos where like every item in their flex or grid is, is just a color block. Right, which is cool. That's fine. But if you take a color block, the min content size of a color block is zero. So it will just squish all the way down to nothing. So it's some of these, some of the stuff around like, well, how does it behave totally depends on what's inside of it. So, right. And we know images are weird as they're loading and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, this in this particular example, because this is just such a cool way to look at this with just the letter A in them, the one FR one, the very first column is the one that shrinks first. All the rest of the three of them just stay the way that they are because fraction is just taking, I guess that makes it all all the extra space when there's lots of space, it gets all the extra space and it will squish all the way down to its min content size, which is the width of the letter, the character a letter a, which is weird, which is weird, but you know, min max won't start squishing until one, the at one FR hits min content size. Right, right, right. So the next one to go is the, the I, I'm finding the min max and the percentage one kind of go at the same time ex- until the minimum hits, and then the percentage one acts alone. Right. Yep. This is so cool. You know, like just to wrap your mind around this, now you can design a website ready for this weird. Yes, that's what's exciting. Is that once you've played around with them enough, not to master it, but just enough to kind of have a clue, you can start designing with this. I would think auto is almost a, a bad word here because you're like you said, like, OK, I put the letter A in that last column auto and it's barely there. It's just there. But then I type I'll put a lorem ipsum paragraph in there and it absolutely smashes everything to a small, it's a hog. It's trying to get to max content size. So it's like, I'm going to just make that one paragraph be on one line. I'm never going to wrap. And it's just never, right. all this Unless space. I absolutely have to wrap, <laughs> right, you know? Right. And that's just with text. Yeah. But you know what's really crazy is so you've got your auto and you've got your min max. Min max will stay at max for a long time. But then all of a sudden, at some point, your min max and your auto will both be squishing. Right. And I'm like, well, when does that, when, when mm. is it that the min max starts squishing? Because auto has been squishing I can get the whole them time. to both squish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Do you know why it's the min the minmax starts squishing at this magical whatever time? I don't know. I don't know how the engineers wrote. The I can even to make get the, the percentage this, and the minmax and the auto to squish at the same time. Yes, but, but the minmax and the auto are dynamically they're they're the algorithm is set up so that they end at the same time. So the minmax will hit min at the same time auto hits min content. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Oh. So they change at the same rate of change, but they change the beginning of the rate of change in the min-max happens so that they hit their mins at the same time. Even though one's a min content size and the other one's a min size. It's crazy. I was going to say, this is maybe the only episode of Shop Talk Show that absolutely requires a code pen <laughs> to fully understand. Oh, I got, I got one I going here. But I feel like that concept okay, has roots in something like keyframes in which that weird stuff happens so that they end at the same time, you know? Maybe, like, yeah. There's some precedence there. I find myself reaching for the very dusty and faded, I can't remember any more graphs in my head that got there during calculus when I was learning calculus. <laughs> like, because it has everything to do with rate of change and things not necessarily being a linear rate of change, but happening on a, like a curved rate of change. Cause also wow. if you make one FR, you make columns like this, one FR, two FR, three FR, four FR, and you put a bunch of content in them, they will change at different rates of change from each other. Let's say you, you make two columns. One is 20% and the other one is 40%. They're going, to sh- they're going to shrink and grow kind of at the same rate of change. But if you make two columns and one is 2FR and the other one is 4FR, they're going to change. The rate of change will be different. It'll be more rapid for the wider one? It'll be more rapid for the wider one. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. It's like there's logarithmic algebra inside of the there's probably lots of people on earth that will never know this and it just it 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 doesn't really matter like i think it may maybe unlock some superpowers for you if you do know it but probably not like totally vital to understand this is uh how to impress on an interview question. <laughs> well uh, no 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 well i would say this the number of people who understand the underlying math are small i could probably name them by name <laughs> there's like seven <laughs> people um The people who, and front-end developers are not those people. I don't need to understand the mathematical equations underneath this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And normal people won't ever know that this is happening because they don't grab this outer edge of their browser window and shrink it and grow the width of the browser over and over and over and over again in order to see what a website does, right? Like, that's been true the whole time with responsive web design. Um, the The experience of responsive web design for our customers, for our users, is just simply that they open up the website in whatever browser they have at whatever screen size or window size they have, and it fits, and it looks nice, and they can do what they came to the website to do, right? That's not changed. There's nothing more exciting about intrinsic web design than that. But in the new world, for the people who are actually designing a layout, especially when you're designing a system of layouts where every page is, has a different content on it. And sometimes you have a photo and sometimes you don't have a photo. And sometimes you have a long headline. Sometimes you have a short headline. Sometimes like it's always a little different. Um, understanding the difference between using MinMax or using FR units or using some of these other choices and understanding what kind of different, you could actually have two layouts that look pretty different at the exact same browser window with simply because the content is different, right? So you might have a, you're, you work for a news, big newspaper and you're putting out, you build a template and the template is used on 50 articles over the next year. And you could bring up that template 
in the same exact size browser window, like four different with four different articles and the layout might look pretty different. So there's a way in which you can algorithmically program a layout that's going to look really awesome all the time, but handle different content and end up with a different layout depending on the content, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Like it, it, you know, the image example, if you have a bigger image or something in there, it'll shape shift to that image. kind of Right. Or you could do it so that the length of the headline sets the width of the image so that the length of the headline, mm-hmm. the width of the image are always the same. Mm-hmm. And when the headline's short, uh, yeah. the image is narrow. And when the headline's long, the image is bigger. It'd be really simple. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're getting kind of complicated in their explanations, especially because this is an audio podcast trying to con- convey visual information. But this is probably, a, hopefully this isn't derailing, but like if you set, does performance factor into this? Like when no. it has to calculate, it doesn't really grids are fast period. Kind of? Yeah. That's why it took five years for the CSS working group to nail the specification, which they started doing in 2012. So it's like, they were done in 2017 um, because that was a huge question. Do we really, we're really going to do this? What about speed? Are we going to be able to do this and have it be fast? And the answer is, is yes. Well, I feel like Flexbox gets dumped on once in a while when you, like it's not as firm of a, it's intended to be rather flexible in that way. So if you use it for full page layout, it's still just as wibbly wobbly as anything else we did, if not yeah. more so. And it's a little yeah. slow for full page layout. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to figure out a full page layout using Flexbox. I would lose my mind. What, what I like about this and your kind of intrinsic uh, design call is I've done a lot of custom layouts in the past, like very blown out pixel perfect D things. Uh, But they were kind of just a nightmare to maintain and update. Somebody wants a text change. you just, you fall apart because it just, it didn't scale um, the kind of hard coded values. But the thing with grid and in this kind of intrinsic design stuff is like the tools are here. We just need to use them. And the syntax is couldn't be easier. This the grid template columns. You know, we we described <laughs> kind of just a, a worst case scenario for grid template columns. But like, y- it is so easy to use and program a grid that not only are like grids easy to make, but it's cheap and you can update it easily and and modify it. You can add another column pretty easily. It's it's not the end of the world to like modify the layout, which I think we were in previously, like the uh, uh, up to like earlier this year, it was a pain to like overhaul a layout, but now it's relatively simple. Yeah. I feel like we're all pretty traumatized from having layouts just shred themselves. Like you touch it one too many times and it just falls apart. Like you do one too many experimental adjustments. You're trying to do something cool and the layout just completely falls apart. And so we've trained ourselves, the designers and the developers to never take risks, to always think that that cool idea is never going to happen. You can't, we can't afford that. It's good. You know, maybe we could engineer it and it would work, but it, right. It would only work for this content. It would take us three weeks to do it. Um, And now what I want, what I hope for the industry is a chance to sort of over, like get through that trauma, like work it out and reverse it and escape it because it's just so different now where you can actually sit there and I don't know, 45 minutes play around and just try a whole bunch of different things and come out with something that is really dynamic, very robust, 
not at all fragile, will hold up no matter what kind of content you throw at it, um, but is is more interesting and visually dynamic or something, some some expression of the brand or some expression of the voice and tone of the content that's is just is just stronger than what we've been doing, which is what have we been doing? Well, we've been so scared to touch our layouts that we've been downloading Bootstrap or downloading Foundation, and we've just been kind of following, like doing paint by number stuff because we just couldn't afford the the time to deal with how hard it was to code. But now it's like adding a grid is display grid and then grid template columns and maybe grid gap, but you. You know, it's as easy as setting a border with a border radius, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like, and we don't hesitate to do that, you right? Know? but like now we can just like, just smear a custom layout in really easily. Yeah. And because of the nature in which things are nested, you don't have to burn down everything you have right now and start over. You can just say, oh, well, we're using this way to do layouts that we've been using forever. Let's just add, but I'm going to do a a new teaser page and in the main content column of the new teaser page, I got to lay out a bunch of images, but maybe instead of doing a classic layout with that using bootstrap or whatever is already running, I'm going to ignore what we have already running and I'm just going to do grid right here. There's just this little thing right here. I'm going to use grid um, and, and see what you might come up with. That's, you know, iterate our way there. We don't have to, it's not all or nothing. I've, that's such a big deal. Every good technology that's ever come along, it was kind of a requisite that it's possible to sprinkle in or or you know deal with an existing. Uh, how much how much web design work is on sites that already exist versus greenfield? It must be yeah. ninety five out of a hundred jobs. You know are on existing sites. Yeah, no, and I think you know it's weird. People um, sometimes have this sort of all or nothing thinking. And so they think, well, we can't use grid because whatever, i.e. whatever. It's like, well, but what's the fallback going to be? You know, maybe you decide not to use grid on the header because you've done this whole float based layout for the header and you might as well just keep it. And that's fine. You do need the header to be the same and all the browsers are, are close to the same. But what about that teaser card layout? Like does the teaser card layout have, like maybe you use t- the grid on the teaser card layout and you decide not to use grid on the header and you use grid on the header in two years or something. Um, but people aren't thinking about it that way. They're thinking about either, you know, we have permission to use grid on everything or we have permission or we don't use grid on anything because we're scared of it. Uh, I think it is about iterating and playing. And I also think it's about like, I mean, if anything, the thing I'm not hearing people raise as a concern, but I would raise as a concern more is if we want to do these kinds of more dynamic layouts where the content is dictating the results to a degree and we're programming sort of at what happens at the minimum and the maximum and the, and which columns get wider or narrower before or after which other columns, how do we communicate that if the designers are designing everything in a, some sort of static way in Figma or sketch mm-hmm. or PDFs or Photoshop or like there's a million tools, but all of them are static. So or I guess now people have this system where they draw three things. They draw a mobile layout, a tablet layout, and a desktop right. layout. That's like, pretty common, and it's it's still, I mean, it kind of does the job, but it definitely doesn't help with this type of level of nuance, for sure. Right. I think design tooling is trying to catch up with that. Doesn't it seem like it? There's little plugins that are like, yeah, install this thing, and now when you, you, know, you can 
you can anchor your design elements to things. So as they grow and shrink, when you change the artboard size, they move along with things and you can add little rules to what they do. But it's so, it feels like a lot of work for, I don't know, then how do you guarantee the person looking at it is dragging it around like you intend them to do? And it really is. Yeah. I also think that like, it's so much, why, why learn an entire complicated tool that has its own thing? You could just learn CSS and do it in the browser. Um, it just yeah. it just emphasizes for me the need for prototyping. But that might be not to like argue, but it's like a little oversimplified. Like I, I feel like so, there is a purpose or design tools that ha- that unlock some creativity. Like while I'm not thinking about CSS, I can think about more bold design decisions and uh, and things. But then but then the fact that I'm I've limited myself because I'm in this weird tool. But then you ended up at like phone hold or hand holding a phone with the app inside of it. And then three bullet points arranged with icons horizontally. And then, no, I totally agree that there's a, there's a time to just imagine there's a time to scribble on a napkin. There's a time to use a, a, a program like sketch or figma or whatever. There's a time. I, I believe there's a time for every one of the tools that people use. I don't have a problem with any of them. I think for me, the question is, this this handoff, right, where the designer is involved to a certain point and then they hand everything off and then the front-end developer takes over. And there's a yeah. way in which most process, most teams make this assumption that static drawings are, are when the designs are done and then the designer can bail and the front-end developer is going to take it from there and the front-end developer is not going to be making any design decisions because the design decisions have already been made. To me, that's not how it actually is going to work unless you want to restrict yourself to the, what was possible in the world of responsive web design. If you want to do any of this stuff that's more dynamic, you can still use the exact same process that you've always used with the exact same tool chain that you've always used. I just want to either acknowledge that the front end developer is the person who's actually finishing the design of the layout. That's so great. That's exactly what's happening. I have some designs right now that are beautifully designed in one static fixed width, and I'm going right. to take over them because this is my project. I'm going to interpret these designs, but bring my, I'm going to take these ideas that you have, these different column widths that flex into it, and I'm going to make that happen with this design design, but I, that makes me part of a designer too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always been a little bit true, you know, where, cause you're, there you are the front end developer with a PDF and there's no hover color and you pick the hover color because you can't send one more email asking people, reminding them to send you hover color, right? Like that's always been a little bit true where the front end developer is finishing the design. But I think that with this kind of layout, it's even more true. So we either are comfortable with that and you hire front end developers who are really good designers and when they finish the layouts, or you get the designer involved. So the, the front end developer and the designer are collaborating. And maybe that means you push it all the front end development all the way into the first meetings, which a lot of people have talked about over the last eight years where you get the developer in the room early. Maybe it means the designers use Figma and Sketch less and they use prototyping and CSS more. Maybe that means designers go and learn CSS. Like there's there's a whole range of different choices to be made. And I don't want to say that one is right and the others are wrong because I don't believe that. But I think it is what's true is that it doesn't matter what tools you use and it doesn't matter what names you give to people. The reality is that design happens by a whole bunch of thinking, a whole bunch of sketching, and then a whole bunch of writing stuff with CSS. And I would love to see that process of making stuff in CSS be acknowledged as finishing the design because it is. You can't finish you can't you can't finish the design if you're not actually working. Is that in CSS. can that be just that should be like just as 
good of a phrase as intrinsic design to me is finishing <laughs> the design. That that's what front end. There's there's certain front end developers who can do that, and certain mm. that are just uh, that are very much just like give me the instructions. I will interpret this to the letter and not use any particular creativity to get it done. And what's interesting to me is that this is how it used to be back in the days of paste up with graphic design before desktop publishing, where like I worked in a little shop and a little print shop, and people would come in with their job. Like, here I am, I'm ordering business cards, or I need some letterhead, or I'm, I have a brochure. Here's an event. I have this event coming up. I We're going to make a brochure about the event. Here's all the copy. And they would give us, like, typewritten pages, and we would retype everything into um, our photo typesetting machine and typeset the text for them. They would give us photos, like physical, actual, black and white only, black and white photographs on photographic paper, eight by 10 usually. And then we would decide where those photos were going to go. We would decide how big the photos were going to end up being. And they would usually be, of course, on a brochure, they're going to be much smaller than that big original eight by 10, right? Like, and we would, and maybe they would have a design, like they'd bring this piece of paper where they had taken a pen or ink pen and like drawing what they want the brochure, take the photo and put it here and then put this title here and then draw, we want a thin rule line and then I want this text here. And But they were not design. you know, they were designing the brochure, but we were the ones actually uh, implementing it. And mm-hmm. they would come back like a week or two later and we would show them a blue line, which was like a, we had basically built the whole thing out. And and then we would give them a, a, a final version that they could um, approve. And if they didn't approve it, they would have to pay us to like redo the whole design again. Um, so they could reject it if they wanted to, but we were really the ones. To, and we were not seen as designers. We were seen as like, it's a very blue collar industry. Like I worked in the print shop. There was Bob the printer was in the back actually printing things and I was burning plates. It was like a physical production thing. We were producing things. Um, And now that job is like blurred because if you designed a brochure, you design it in InDesign and you, it looks very much like the, what you expect when it comes out the other end and you can decide how big you want the text to be or how big you want the image to be. Um, But it does feel a little bit like the web is sort of mimicking what used to happen in in paste up where like okay you can drop off that pdf for me and what you think the web design what the website's going to look like when it's done but the distance between what that pdf is doing and what the actual website is going to do is so far that there's a lot of design work that still needs to be done and so the folks who are um maybe not given the job title designer are the ones who are actually finishing that design Anyway, it's changing. It's always changing. It feels like it's it's about to change again, if in fact mm-hmm. we take advantage of what we can do with grid. That's and funny how just... unsolved it all feels. And yeah. it's like, gosh, you, all these smart people, can't you just figure this out? And we just were just talking about columns, but actually everything we just said about columns also works in the row direction. We can define a row with percent. We can define a row with min-max. We can define a row as auto. We can define a row as a one FR unit or any FR unit. Um to make I feel like that's the next frontier. Well, I mean, the next dimension um because just for so long it's just been like, oh, don't mess with verticality because it's just never going to work out. Yeah. But now oh ho ho, we can mess with verticality. <laughs> yeah. It's it kind of works out. Like, I mean, you're going to need FRs and and, you know, kind of content to kind of spill out, but um 
Uh, but wow, uh, we've never controlled it. And so now we can kind of program it. That's, that's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, in the past, I guess, really, we didn't have rows, but it it would almost be the equivalent of using grid today, CSS grid or the other technologies we have and always setting your rows to be auto height. Like every row is auto height. And it's like, well, but what if you had three rows and they were all one FR unit? Then that means, because at least in the writing mode, the horizontal writing mode that English is in and much of the web is in, by def- definition, the FR units are going to be, there's no there's no known size to the height of the container. And so they're not going to distribute extra space on the height of the container, but they're going to look at the content that's in them. They're going to see which one is the tallest and they're going to make, make the other ones the same as tall. That's yeah. awesome. If you set them in FR units. Yeah. Wow. I never really thought of that. I always think of mostly the usefulness is like I can set something in another column that might start when something in another column ended. So it's kind of useful to have those row lines in place. But right. it's interesting that you can force a height. And if you do if uh, you do put a height on the containing block, like you could say min height 100 VH, which yeah. would say, okay, if there's more content, make this taller. But if there's less content than fits in the window, then I at least want this grid container to be the size of 100 viewport height units. Um, then what that will do is it gives you all this sort of white space, and you could have a you could have rows that are are empty and and yet like take up space because there's white space. They could be percent- and yet and because it's min height, it, there's no danger. Like if you did right. overflow content, it will just push taller and it's fine. Right. And we haven't done that either. I mean, we've had vertical media queries, but we haven't been able to define space in the vertical direction in the way that you can with grid. It always just felt so dangerous. And it's nice that now we have these options that are, add possibility without introducing danger. Yes. It's very robust. It's, totally like that on purpose. I mean, a grid came out, grid was invented after we understood the problem space. We understood that screens are way different sizes and you can't control the size of the screen. We understood that we're usually programming templates and you don't know how, how big or how long the content is. We understood that fonts, you don't really know whether people are seeing things in the font that you originally intended or if it's the size that you originally specified, you can't control that. So everything has to be able to grow to hold that amount of content, um, which is why things like min content and max content uh, and intrinsic and extrinsic sizing become incredibly important. Even though all of those concepts predate grid, they predate Flexbox, they go back to like CSS2 and they're old concepts, but they're things that like we never had to really worry about. But now because we couldn't do anything about them anyway, but now we can. And now those concepts are actually really useful to understand and um, understanding overflow and what happens and what your options are to control overflow so that you get what you want. Um, and you don't end up with the word awesome sticking out of a box on a mug that you didn't want. Um, it's not that it's just going to magically work perfect all the time. It's more like Oh, now we have, I have four or five options and I am responsible as the front end developer to make sure that the options that I chose are going to do really well all the time. We may need to wrap up. Yeah. Time yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, like, uh, let's say a, a shop talk listener, they're redoing their homepage on their site. What, like, what would be your, like, do this, try this first? Like what, what would be that thing like to, to blow out their layout and, and make it just 
just not the same old boring. Yeah. So I think, of course, there's always a balance between finding time to play and learn and like shipping things for work that are due next week, right? So, of course, if you have deadlines, you have to make your deadlines. And of course, none of us can, I don't know, find a time machine and inject extra time into the universe. Like, so, of course, things are limited. You can't only do so much. But how do we find ways to grow and play and learn while shipping for deadlines? Or like you said, you're working on your personal home site page, you know, your own personal website is a perfect chance to mess around because you don't necessarily have a deadline like you do for work. Um, I am encouraging people to play like crazy. So CodePen is a great place to do it. Like just play around and see what happens. I have really enjoyed opening up uh, graphic design books or a magazine or graphic design history books with posters from the past or anything that's just like not web design stuff. It could be things that don't, I mean, it could be cinema. It could be ideas from cinematography or other media and just go, what would it take for me to translate this poster from 1945 into an intrinsic web design webpage? And I learned so much by doing that because it seems like, oh, that's going to be easy. I'll just make four columns and three rows. And and then I'm like, oh, but should I use FR units? I'm like, well, maybe I should use MinMax or maybe I should. And then like, you know, I was like, oh, I don't even know what that is anymore. I have to go look that up. And then there you are looking something up and playing and learning. And I also have been making all these videos on the YouTube channel Layout Land where I walk people through demos or I show people a new CSS property that maybe they haven't had a chance to explore. I have I have like a three-part series that explains FR units, min max, min content, max content, which we didn't even really talk about, um, where I have one video on each of those and I show people exactly what they do. Um, and I'll be making many, many, many more videos. Uh, and also my conference talks from the last three years are going to be out. I think the one from 2017 is coming out today, actually. So check those out. Um, there's, they're packed with ideas of things to play with and try out. I also, all the experiments that I've done over the last five years are up at labs.jensimmons.com and people can go there. And I've tried to put a lot of links to CodePen demos there too. I should go back in and fill in the ones that are missing. Um, but of course you can always use an inspector like, oh, the Firefox crit inspector and uh, dig in just on the page itself and look at how I built things and uh, edit them, fork them, try them out yourself. Well, awesome. Well, I think that's good. I definitely recommend the layout land subscribe. So, uh, thanks Jen so much for coming on. Uh, and, and hopefully people, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, get, get the bug, uh, to create more interesting layout. So thank you dear listener for downloading this in your podcatcher of choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Uh, follow us on Twitter at shop talk show for tens of tweets a month. And if you hate your job, head over to shop talk show.com slash jobs, get a brand new one. Because people want to hire people like you. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Shopdoctor.com. <laughs>